0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale's Whitney Humanities Center presents John Donatich, director of Yale University Press, on why books still matter. This talk was the keynote address at a conference commemorating the 100th anniversary of the press. To make the declaration, why books still matter, is to beg the question, do books still matter? Ought books to matter still? and to beg the question is to risk sounding self-justifying and anachronistic. Books have a lot of explaining to do these days. Bibliophiles and even publishers are treated with a fair amount of suspicion, and who can blame them? Most of us carry on like fetishists. You can often hear us gushing about the beautiful object of the book, that 700-year-old feat of perfect engineering. You might see us in raptures over the grain of paper or the pacing of illustrations, the complement of typeface and design. We will bore you with the sensual pleasure of the book, its smell and feel, the way in which a fine book ages. This relatively benign defense of the book can be dismissed as the sentimental mumblings of Luddites who on their off hours argue for the reinstitution of the Lyceum, the debating society, and the lecture platform, acting like that certain horse who in 1911 turns his head slowly as he feels the rumbling heat of the Model T Ford bearing down upon him. But there are more sinister charges against defenders of the book as well. Copyright holders are accused of being enemies of progress and democracy. Libraries groan under the weight of our production. Many look forward to the day in which we can etherize books online and commit what the director of the Beinecke Library, Frank Turner, calls bibliographic euthanasia. But those who hate and fear the book have populated its history from the beginning. The banning of books is still a national headline, as well as a recent presidential campaign issue. But even more insidious is the prediction of the book's demise by enthusiasts of the Internet. One has to wonder why the rhetoric against books has turned so hostile. Is it because books still matter? My own personal library does not seek revenge against the Internet, but am I alone in detecting the aggressive tone of those who celebrate the virtual library at the expense of the physical book? Does one technology necessarily obliterate another? Did the television destroy the radio? It's difficult not to sound threatened when defending the book, especially when the enemies of book assume that the war is already won. Steve Jobs of Apple recently said that he wasn't even interested or going to bother to enter the e-book reader market because that's not what the world wants. No one reads books anymore, he said. It's over. And just several days ago, a Los Angeles Times article quoted Marcus Melissa Tsuniga, founder of the political website, the Daily Kos, who said about those who fear the Google Book Project, like natural selection, there are species that adapt to the changing environment around them and thrive and others die off. The article also quotes Stephen Dubner co-author of the best-selling Freakonomics, who said, the crabbiness that emanates from a certain breed of thinker, writer, a breed that I generally admire, by the way, about how the Internet's cornucopia of information is destroying book culture is based upon fear of change than anything. Most people don't even like to change the part in their hair. Asking them to accept a change in the way words are dispersed through culture is a bit much. Zuniga adds, we no longer have to depend on the so-called or self-appointed experts to tell us what we should think. So it's come to this, the day when the self-appointed experts who write, blog, uh, who write books rather, are finally taken down by the self-appointed experts who write blogs. And whom should we trust? The career experts who write books and deliberate over their content while researching for years, or the temporary experts who form the chattering class on the blogosphere? Now I don't hate blogs or internet writing. I love them, I read them. I recognize that what goes on in them though is different than what goes on in books. And I don't believe that the expansion and growth of the internet has to mean the death of books. So time for a uh, personal true confession. I love books more, and I always have. As a son of, of immigrant parents, I befuddled and even alarmed my parents by my affection for books. I took any chance to lose myself in books, though I've always regarded reading as more of an engagement than escapism. Go outside, my father used to yell at me. And during grade school, I would sometimes forego lunch, asking my parents for the 25 cents to buy a hot lunch, while telling the school cafeteria I was going home for lunch. Then I would wait in the the woods behind the school during the lunch break, hoarding my change until I had enough to buy a book. When I collected enough to have a little library, I challenged my sister to blindfold me and test my ability to name a book and its publisher by touch and smell alone. (laughs) It's a little obsessive, I know. Uh, But I was right more times than not, and these books awakened in me tension as a reader. I spent as much time trying to suspend my awareness of a book as a medium and getting lost in the dream of its narrative. And I've devoted my entire adult life to publishing, and despite that, I still think books matter, or ought to. However, there's a lot of evidence that points to a troubled future for the book. Here are some stats. The Progress, and international reading literacy study, reports that reading, writing, and comprehension tests taken by 10-year-old children around the world reveal declining literacy levels. Both the US and the UK lost six points in the last five years, ranking respectively number 18 and 19 globally. Two NEA reports made national headlines when they revealed that literary reading in America is not only declining rapidly among all groups, but the rate of decline has accelerated, especially among the young. The second report further complained that educators and publishers contribute to a general culture which does not encourage or reinforce reading. A much-publicized report from Ithaca University Publishing in a Digital Age, reviews the seeming limitless range of opportunities for a faculty member to distribute his or her work, from setting up a web page or blog, to posting an article to a working paper website or institutional repository, to including it in a peer-reviewed journal or book. Consequently, nearly all intellectual effort results in some form of publishing. So what to do? Telling us that reading books is good for us is not persuasive. No one enjoys how their leisure behavior is being judged. That's a losing battle. Like the independent bookseller who's lecturing their communities to buy local as if buying at Amazon were a moral issue. It's not. And booksellers se- need more compelling reasons to secure their customers' loyalties, as do publishers. If it proves true that we prefer getting our news and our entertainment from streaming media, television, and hyperlinked texts, what does that mean for us as human beings? Does the book still matter in our evolution as a species? Will it lose out to content that is born digital? It's not just information, but entire generations of people that are said to be born digital as well. And what does it mean to call a group the digital information? First... It presumes a certain kind of affluence. The digital digital generation has to be able to afford access to computers and the web and all that implies. Second, it's simply not true that this current college generation does not read books. They read books when that assignment works for them. The National Association of College Stores reports that only 30% of their stores are equipped to to deliver textbooks as e-books. And within those stores, only 15% of students prefer e-books to printed textbooks. So if America is a nation built on ideas rather than manufacturing, publishing is that industry in which they meet. Technology is where the expression of desire meets the undertow of fear. And knowledge requires tools that can make our lives smarter, easier, better, and more pleasurable. That's all certainly for the good. But our zeal for the new technology needs to be tempered with a skeptical awareness of its implications. As a culture, we're always better at gauging what there is to gain rather than what there is to lose. Google, of course, is the elephant in the room, the big engine of change. Having scanned the giant libraries of Harvard, Stanford, Michigan, Oxford, and New York Public Library, they have made available millions of works that were orphaned by their out-of-print and out-of-copyright status. Google's goal is to build a comprehensive library of all the books in the world, a virtual Alexandria. Publishers, while wary, have profited from the disinterment of their deep backless into the light of day by Google searches. The Long Tail, made famous by Chris Anderson, shows that while only about 2% of the the nearly 200,000 books published each year sell over 5,000 copies, the rest are born directly into the long tail, or the remainder bin, the publishing industry's equivalent of direct-to-DVD. So writing about the idea of universal library excites some people to a state of utopian hysteria. Kevin Kelly is the self-appointed senior maverick of Wired Magazine, and you've got to love that title. Senior implies authority, Maverick implies iconoclast, but together they grant him the power to call anyone he disagrees with a useless and obstructive dinosaur. And anyway, didn't the last election prove that we always don't go for the senior Maverick? But at any rate, Kelly writes that plans like Google's will allow all, and this is where you have to sort of get expansive and cosmic, um, all the books in the world to become a single liquid fabric of interconnected words and ideas, The Universal Library and its books will be unlike any library or books we have known. Pushing us rapidly toward that Eden of everything and away from the paradigm of the physical paper tone is the hot technology of the search engine. What these great digital libraries will accomplish, hopefully, is a conversation among themselves. Sharing patterns of use and user-created metadata, recording behaviors and interests of readers, Books will reference other books and drill down to source materials. In a sense, these digital libraries will breathe life into the countless numbers of footnotes accumulated over centuries. But even then, it will never be complete. By Google's own estimate, there have been over 100 million books published. Only about 5 or 10% of those are in print. 20% printed between the 15th century and 1923 are are out of copyright. The rest, some 75% of all books ever printed, are orphans in copyright but out of print. Books are only a part, often a selective synthesis, of the record of human experience. Any claim to an exhaustive and encyclopedic human record is merely a pipe dream. Nonetheless, the Google Library Project is a great boon to scholars. In the bookless future, David A. Bell, a scholar of European history and politics, writes the following fantasy as he's doing research for a book on the culture of war in Napoleonic Europe. I'm in a coffee shop on my university campus. A passage from Edmund Burke's Letters on a Regicide Peace comes to mind, but I can't remember the exact wording. Finding the passage as little as five years ago would have required going to the library, locating the book on the shelf or not, and paging through the text in search of the half-remembered material. Instead, on my laptop, I open Internet Explorer, connect to the wireless campus network. Seconds later, I have found the entire text online. I search for the words, armed doctrine, and up comes the quote, total time elapsed less than a minute. It's a pretty cool description, right? A new and hyper-convenient world, scholarship in the humanities and social sciences revolutionized by the new information technology, which has put so so much primary and secondary source material online. Now the great irony, if not the blind spot in the description, is that all of this hyperlinked research in a world collapsed of time and travel is in service of nothing other than the writing of his next book. So, But to Professor Bell's credit, he quickly darkens his fantasy into dystopian shadows. Will the internet change not only what scholars read but also how they read? Does reading online tire us more quickly, encourage us to skim and diminish our actual critical engagement with the text? These are important questions and bear some reflection. First, I'd like to try to get at the experience or character of reading a book online. From the tablet to the scroll to the codex to the printed book, um, we have been looking for the optimal device for recording information since reading developed in the first place. Portability and usability distinguish the book from its inception, which explains why it has lasted some 700 years. Technology did not destroy the concept of the book, it enhanced its nature and quickened its production. The rise of computers at first did not threaten the book either. The screens of PCs were friendlier to spreadsheets and information that needed to be scrolled through rather than read through. Users of PCs preferred to toggle between applications rather than proceed sequentially through a linear document. Sustained reading on a large screen makes the eyes glaze over and the back ache most troubling concentration fails. Attention wanders. It wants to scan and skim, toggle and hyperlink. Reading on screen makes you want to do what it's easy to do there, search and discover, strategize how to get the information you need. You're not forced to surrender to the organizing principles established by the author or painstakingly follow the path of argumentation she has laid for you. You won't necessarily have to make marginal notes of themes to trace throughout the text and circle footnotes whose source you want to check. Online, it's all a click away. But you're also missing something important. Searching around in an electronic text, you can skim, cut, and paste, but you will read things out of a deliberate context and sequence. You will get to the nut more quickly, but you will miss out learning how the author arrived at his or her conclusions. Marianne Wolfe, in her book, *Proust and the Squid, The Story and Signs of the Reading Brain, writes how we are how we read. Emails, blogs, hyperlinks, pop-up ads, news alerts, etc. require a very different intelligence than that needed by a sustained and deep reading experience. We may become mere decoders of information, according to Ms. Wolfe. Whether the book can be enhanced by becoming a hypertext online is a very important question to publishers and editors. We need to anticipate the new skills required for preparing texts that will spawn real-time discussions online. Writers will negotiate collaborative development of content that is never static, always expanding. Readers will personalize their books with annotations and hyperlinks to personal journals. The beginning and ending of texts will be porous and shifting. They will lead the reader to discussion forums, social bookmarking sites, reader reviews, and then further open those venues to email lists and social networks. To my mind, all these benefits enhance the experience of deep reading in a book. To some extent, it's what should happen after a group of people read a book, whether in a book group or a classroom that spills over into a cafe or online. But it is not a replacement is there a downside to this exciting prospect, only insofar as the futuristic fantasy rejects the centrality of the book, or sees the book outside the universal library as a fish out of an aquarium, gasping for air? The Institute for the Future of the Book talks about the emergence of the networked book, the book as a place, as a social software, a sustained intellectual experience, a mover of ideas reinvented in a peer-to-peer ecology. A good future of the book is one that combines the best qualities of physical books with the best qualities of the network. At last, a reasonable, nuanced vision of the future of the book that protects an intellectual legacy and a physical craftsmanship while ushering it into a new partnership with new technology. Books still matter in this universe and will not be replaced by the blogosphere. And as Alberto Manguel writes, it is interesting to note how often a technological development such as Gutenberg's promotes rather than eliminates that which it is supposed to supersede. One has to wonder whether there will be a cognitive cost to the migrating of scholarship away from books. I think of my own behavior online versus browsing the stacks of a library. When I first came to Yale some six years ago, I spent a Saturday wandering around the stacks in Sterling and want nothing more than to be locked in, never leave the building again, and order takeout for the rest of my life. Leave me here, I'll be just fine. But browsing the stacks was a kind of invitation to serendipity. I was excited by the distractions I would find on the way to what I was looking for. Researching online, I feel more as if I were playing a video game, dodging pop-up ads as if I were finding asteroids with a joystick. The kinds of things that came my way were impositions, rather than accidents, imposed on me by mysterious and possibly venal algorithms, rather than discovered by curiosity. Another discomforting aspect of the search imperative is that the very agency that allows you to collect information is collecting information about you not the sound the Big Brother alarm, it is important to note that to date our content providers and search engines are for-profit corporations whose motives are at best not transparent. To use the collaborative filtering of some search engines is to dance with a partner who has long hands, as my mother used to warn my sister. Online marketing strategies want to disguise themselves as a service, customized to your needs, rather than a tool to manipulate your desires in a medium that is too new to learn defenses against. A public annotation of a digital text is called a tag. and I often feel like I'm playing tag when reading or responding on a blog, strategizing how to outrun or hide from or make contact with whoever is it. Unlike that singular attention the printed book relies on, the internet needs a multiplicity of users who believe in it, like an audience clapping for Tinkerbell to survive. Even as web indexing proves our online writing to be less original than we thought, we shout louder to be recognized within the din. The question becomes not so much who is able to be heard, but just whom ought to be listened to. The democratic ideal guarantees that every voice can be heard, but it does not insist that every voice must be heard. Who decides which voice should rise above the noise of the blogosphere, the noise of democracy? Traditionally, that has been the job of the publisher, to select, develop, edit, to equip with bibliographic, back matter, to design and manufacture. In the age of information in which research, is not only accessible, but ubiquitous. It's imperative that we ask ourselves the question, what needs to be a book, now more than ever? There's no secret that university presses have experienced a crisis in the last decade, constriction of library budgets, continued specialization of academic disciplines have diminished readers of scholarly monographs, production costs have increased, used books cut into backless sales, course packs cannibalize adoption uh, market for textbooks, An internal study proved that we lose an average of $10,000 per title published. We rely more and more on outside subsidies from authors and institutions. So the marketplace itself demands that we ask that question, what needs to be a book? In particular, what needs to be a scholarly monograph? Aside from tenure and career advancement issues, what does a university press have to publish? And what is a monograph, anyway? Webster's has an inelegant definition, a written account of a single thing. The chair of our Publications Committee, David Bromwich, once defined it as a work of scholarship that will not sell many copies, until it does, at which point it becomes a gem of scholarship. <laughs> While there was certainly a twinkle in his eye, uh, the distinction has become actually a useful one and even prompted a spirited conversation at a recent Agenda List Publications Committee meeting. We started with thinking about what qualities the scholarly monograph and the gem of scholarship might share, things like original primary research, a blindness to fashion, a love of the ignored and the arcane, providing the culture a way of keeping its neglected history warm, a rigorous methodology, a compound argument capable of advancing a dozen or more layers, a scholarly apparatus that not only amplifies the text, but um, which enables the reader to reconstruct and replicate the original research, to test the author's conclusions, or to use the same material to different ends. So where, then, might the two part company? How could a monograph be cut to reveal its lapidary and gem-like qualities? Well, in this, in this case, we, we identified that the research might demonstrate a passionate commitment, an almost athletic joy in uncovering and managing masses of material, a structure that invents a new model of managing that complexity, a prose that contributes terminology to the lingua franca of discipline. It challenges yet can be understood by the educated non-specialist, As Einstein said, everything should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. And a book that crosses disciplines with ease and learns how to listen to its own internal echoes. And while perhaps narrow in scope, that book feels close. You can feel the breath of its intellect on the page. You all know what I'm talking about. I th- I'm sure. You've all been entranced by the seamlessness of a narrative or dazzled by the marshalling of dozens of arguments in service of a grand theory. You have been transformed within the alchemy of literature. You have been moved by a book. So I, I hope I've made clear that the defense of the book does not require the trashing of digital culture. Books want to enter a relationship in which the best qualities in both print and digital content can be amplified and mutually aggrandized. The e-reader, for instance, knows that technology does not need to destroy the innovation whose shoulders it stands on. What the Sony reader and the Amazon Kindle try to do is to simulate the book, to replicate the experience of reading a single book while traveling with the portability of an entire bookshelf of content. So far, sales of these have been modest but encouraging. Preparing for a long flight to China recently, I myself downloaded some 50 books ranging from the complete works of Shakespeare to a couple dozen manuscripts Yale will publish in the next year. I thought I would be the picture of minimalist cool with a very discreet black shoulder bag. I would have my Blackberry, my iPod, and my Kindle. But as I was leaving the house, I panicked and I shoved six books in there. <laughs> Just in case. But I may be able to retrain myself here and get used to reading an entire book on a device, like watching a film on a cell phone or shuffling an opera recording on my iPod or eating dinner on a paperless plate every night. But the prospect of a hyperlinked device that will allow a reader to plug into a portal library, portable library of books may be the best argument for why books still matter. And if book publishers and digital content providers take each other's counsel, the marriage should work. Publishers will commission, select, edit, peer review, design, and publish both in print and electronic forms new books. The better the books and the more creative its dissemination, the healthier the university press. A word on the business model. It's not a law of nature that the book a product of human intelligence and creativity belongs in the public commons. To argue that books should be given away free is to deny a scholar or a writer the right to engage in an act of gainful employment. In order to be morally consistent, those who protest in the public commons that information wants to be free should also advocate that tuitions want to be waived and professors want to teach without salaries. But that pill is a hard one for the infotopians uh, to swallow. They relish the a future in which the universal library is up and running, free of cost, free of books. The question I have for them is, then what? A bookless world in which people learn to read and research by virtue of snippets and tags and annotations and wiki research will be a world of people who not only won't be able to read books, but won't be able to write them. And the record of human experience several thousand years evolved will be irrevocably changed. So I think there are two dominant fantasies of reading that have been implicit uh, throughout the talk, each of which is valid and which cannot help but embody religious prototypes. And the first is to look at the internet as a great big religious metaphor of the cosmic consciousness, the planet's six billion minds connected together into an Edenic dream of the universal library. Walter Benjamin, in a letter to Adorno, said, well before either of them could even conceive of a computer, much less an e-reader, wrote, the great work of the future will consist of fragments torn from the body of other work. It is a reassembly, a patchwork quilt of meanings already accomplished. The second is the image of the individual reader before the Universal Library. Personally, I collect more books than I need, or can possibly even read in, in a single lifetime. Visitors to my home sometimes ask, have you really read all of these? And the answer, of course, is no, but that isn't the point. The collector always wants to own more than he can experience all at once. It needs to be enough to overwhelm. There must always be more possibility than satisfaction. And the collection is one of the only ways to have too much and not enough at the same time, to be consoled by what cannot be known completely. This is another way in which reading a book serves some kind of religion. While immersed in a book, I always feel that that book was meant to be read one reader at a time, written precisely for his or her particular attention, an object waiting to be lit by a singular imagination. The interaction between reader and writer is as intimate as a penitent in prayer. If it is well done, a book will allow you to suspend your awareness of the medium. It wants to be fed to the fires of your attention, to atomize and dematerialize like the Gnostic soul. The other fantasy of reading is the melding of multiple consciousnesses into one giant text, exploding into levels of apprehension enabled by radical technologies. Either apprehension is lit from within by the single and deliberate mind who wants to reach another mind. And that's why books still matter. Thank you. Why Books Still Matter took place on November 14, 2008 and was jointly sponsored by the Yale University Press, the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library, and the Whitney Humanities Center. The conference brought together university press publishers and scholars for a variety of panel discussions on the digital future of academic publishing, the idea of the press in the modern university, and the broader question, whither the university press?